independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listener patrons like you. Today's episode is also sponsored by Made Trade, one of the very few consciously curated online stores that I direct my friends and family to for everything from home goods to clothing, accessories, and holiday gifts. Made Trade makes a really easy-to-shop ethically made and earth-minded products, and every purchase directly supports small businesses, independent makers, as well as artists and communities from around the globe that are working to preserve their their own biocultural diversity and craftsmanship. They're also a woman-owned family-run company that offsets carbon emissions from all shipping and donates a percentage of every purchase to the nonprofit Fibershed, whose founder Rebecca Burgess, you might recall having been a repeat guest on this show, talking about their work revitalizing local and regenerative textile systems. So if you're looking for ethically made, eco-conscious, and fair trade gifts for loved ones or yourself this holiday season, I highly recommend checking out Made Trade and you can get 10% off your first order at madetrade.com slash green dreamer. That's M-A-D-E-T-R-A-D-E dot com slash green dreamer. If gardeners and home home growers aren't taking care of their soil, they're contributing to the same issues that large-scale agriculture is, and that's degradation. And when you get degradation, you get soil erosion, you get nutrient leaching into your local waterways, uh, you get greenhouse gas emissions. That was Acadia Tucker, a regenerative farmer, climate activist, and author. Her books are a call to action to citizen gardeners everywhere and to lay the groundwork for planting an organic, regenerative garden. Just a few episodes ago, we talked about the movement of turning lawns into meadows, which I highly recommend going back to. But this one is also a really important and complimentary episode because turning lawns into regenerative food gardens is also another great alternative or something that can be done in conjunction with turning lawns into meadows because they don't don't have to be mutually exclusive. So today we're going to talk about the difference between growing annual and perennial plants in your garden or community spaces, using gardening as a form of activism and rebellion against an extractive and exploitative system that so many of us are reliant on today, but that we hope to dismantle and change, and so much more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. As a kid, I kind of was a little bit of a wild child. I was always out playing in the woods you know, just being outside as much as possible. And I kind of had this deep awe 
as a kid. And I remember wanting to just understand kind of the natural world around me as much as I could. I was just kind of fascinated by it. So that kind of in my older years led me to study ecology in college, where I got to explore like really cool landscapes like the steep coastal cliffs of the Channel Islands off the coast of California, the diverse Peruvian rainforest. All of these led me to study endemic plant species. So during this time, I just really fell in love with plants and I, I truly couldn't get enough. And it was during my last semester of school where I was approached with an opportunity to start a farm with two of my best friends. I knew it would be really hard work, but I really couldn't pass up this opportunity. And we really had no idea of what we were doing. But over the course of those six years, we actually created a really beautiful four-season market garden that became the staple of the community. And kind of through all of that trial and error, I slowly started seeing myself more and more as a regenerative farmer and kind of the practices and the way that I decided to grow food for my community. So part of what you encourage people to grow is illustrated by your first book, Growing Perennial Foods Are Perennial Crops. I'd love for you to first touch on how perennial plants differ from annuals and then share how we've maybe transformed our landscapes through this lens. So a perennial plant just means it keeps coming back each season without having to replant. So when you think of our traditional food crops like potatoes or lettuce or spinach, those are called annuals. So you plant them once, you get to harvest from them, and then they go to seed, and then they kind of just die. Their life, you know, they've finished their life cycle. A perennial crop will live, flourish, produce seed, and then kind of go dormant over the winter, but then come back up without any kind of work at all from yourself. So they're really kind of this self-generating, beautiful plant concept that that we have because, you know, in the busy spring while I'm rushing trying to get all of my annuals in the ground, I already have, you know, perennial strawberries and asparagus and rhubarb coming up that I can snack on. And it's just kind of like a gift. In terms of like our natural landscape and how that's shifted, I feel, you know, at least in the farming community, a lot of our emphasis is put on annual production. You know, our big industrial farms of grain and wheat and corn, these are all annual crops that take a lot of effort and inputs, including fossil fuels, to kind of grow the crops that we've come to rely on in industrialized agriculture, where I think that there is this need for more of a shift towards those perennial crops in order to reduce the inputs we need to grow food. And one of the things I'm most passionate about is protecting our soil and building, you know, healthier soil overall. Mm. Do you think shifting from human tenant landscapes of mostly perennials to annuals, especially in terms of our agricultural system, has affected our ecosystems or regional climates in any way? Absolutely. I think this need for kind of monocultures in a sense, so growing annuals in large, large blocks, has a very detrimental impact on our environment. And in fact, farming is one of the larger greenhouse gas emitters, you know, along with transportation and energy sectors, you know, people tend to overlook just how how bad in terms of emissions and pollution our agricultural sector as a whole has. Uh, and a lot of that can be accounted for the large scale production of these annual crops. Mm. I think we have a general lack of eco-literacy in that 
people see a landscape full of greenery and plants and think, you know, that's great. Like there's a lot of greenery here. But the general public has so little knowledge about how different species of plants express themselves differently across different bioregions and can therefore affect the ecosystems where they're grown differently. So an example of this is the difference between annuals and perennials. So we might walk by a farm that is all annuals and maybe underneath the ground might be degrading the soil, but we're like, oh, there's a lot of greenery here and that feels nice. (laughs) Yeah, no, that too. And I I feel the same way with straight rows. You know, my farming itself has transitioned from very kind of linear, what you think of that classic bucolic image of, you know, straight rows of corn or wheat or any, any crop really. And now my gardens have become more of kind of this mod podge of, (laughs) of, you know, organized chaos in a sense where learning that, you know, linear is not always, it might look beautiful or look right in some instances, but it's, you, it's, it's exactly what you want is to kind of create this, you know, backyard ecosystem that kind of services you with food, with natural predators, so you don't have to use pesticides, with mulch so that your soil stays moist longer and you don't have to water in as much. All of that kind of comes from purposefully orchestrating kind of this backyard ecosystem that isn't linear. In in fact, it can be quite chaotic or messy to the unobservant eye. Right. Are there actual biological impacts of planning things out in this really linear fashion, even if you have a diversity of species in that linear design compared to one where you kind of just allow them to do their thing and go wild? You know, I can't attribute that just to kind of planting orientation, but the act of planting kind of in this regenerative ecosystem matter, my biggest thing about it is it can actually help fight climate change because plants on their own naturally draw down carbon dioxide. And in the process of making sugars for themselves to eat, they release some of these carbon-rich sugars underground that soil organisms use for food. And when the soil organisms eat those sugars and then they die underground, that carbon then becomes trapped underground. And when you farm in a way that isn't constantly yanking up annuals or tilling the ground each spring for a new crop, you're allowing that soil to sit underground and be stored. So it's it's actually sucked out of the atmosphere and stored underground where it's left if it's undisturbed. And you also say that growing perennials is a way to grow more resilient crops that don't require as much tending. I'm wondering what it is about maybe how they establish themselves and grow that gives them that resilience, especially in the face of climate change. Sure. A lot of that has to do with their really extensive root networks. Because they're kind of in it for the long haul, they've adapted to grow these extensive root systems that can, you know, search for nutrients and water where shorter rooted annuals just couldn't couldn't reach. The other thing about perennials that's really kind of interesting is that they've learned to conserve their water and nutrients better because they know they're there for a while. They're not as greedy as annuals. Annuals might pick up nutrients and water and use them just as they see it because all they, you know, their main goal in life is to produce seed and then die. Where perennials their main goal is to kind of live out a longer life. So they use their resources a lot more carefully. And in that regard, they can be a lot more resilient to kind of these extreme weather fluctuations that we'd be seeing, you know, lots of rain and flooding or, you know, extreme drought, things like that. 
So if perennials require less work to grow, are more resilient, and can better weather climate extremes, why is it that our food system has transformed into one that's dominated by annuals today? Because with all this in mind, that doesn't really make sense. I <laughs> know <laughs> it doesn't, does it? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of that, unfortunately, has to do with the consolidation of agriculture in general. You know, mainstream agriculture is kind of monopolized by two or three very big companies that kind of make their money from farmers continuously buying seed and farmers continuously having to buy pesticides that go with that seed. And, you know, the agribusiness really depends on all of these imports that farmers need to buy in order to be successful in what they do. So I think that there's this general trend of, you know, unfortunately, money, money talks. So, in order for them to make as much money as possible, I think it's had this adverse effect of environmental degradation. Because I guess they can make more money when there are inherent problems with a system. Whereas if a, exactly. if, if a farm were fully regenerative, it pretty much has everything that it needs. So you don't really need to purchase additional inputs. You wouldn't need seed. You wouldn't need, you know, if it was truly a closed loop farm, you would save all your own seed. You would have animals making, you know, manure that would act as your fertilizer. It would be um, completely closed. So you wouldn't have a need for kind of these big companies telling you what to buy and when to buy it. So I guess maybe that's a way to kind of starve out these monopolizing agrobusinesses is if a lot of our farms learned and became regenerative to take the power away from them. Absolutely. I mean, that certainly would be a very powerful act. And then, you know, not only taking that power back from themselves, but the wonders they can actually do for the environment as well. It would be a really nice solution to a lot of these kind of woes that large scale agriculture has kind of uh, been trending towards. Another way we've drastically altered our landscapes is through lawns, so lawns for people's private properties. A study from the International Society for Photogrammetry and Remote Sensing found that our nation's lawns combined now cover an area larger than New York State, and that grass, not corn, is our largest irrigated crop. From my understanding, most ornamental grasses are perennials. So what are the other concerns with these vast areas of perennial lawns, if not the fact that they are perennials? So turf is is an interesting subject in, in terms of thinking regeneratively, right? Because it is a perennial and it does have one of the things that grass is awesome at is it really has one of the largest root systems of, of perennials out there. They really do an amazing job at adding a lot of organic material to the to the soil stru- like structure. And on their own, there's nothing bad about turf. But what happens is everybody has that picturesque ideal green rolling lawn Mm. and just in nature that's not quite how it plays out so in order to get it that way you're burning fossil fuels to mow it and cut it and there's also a lot of fertilizer and pest control disease control that gets sprayed all over these lawns to make them look as pristine as they do so it's just not it's not a natural system and it's also again bringing back to that idea of a monoculture You know, it'd be nice if there's lots of different types of grass mixed together, but a lot of times you'll have one or two grass only. And that in itself makes it more prone to disease, more prone to pest pressure, which means more and more chemicals are dumped on top of it to try to control these issues.
Your latest book, Growing Good Food, is part of Stone Pier's Citizen Gardening series, which highlights how to grow food and garden in ways that are good for the planet. We often talk about conventional agriculture, as we just discussed, as a big contributor to a lot of our environmental issues. Given that so much of our lands are actually parts of people's homes and private properties that they tend and maintain themselves, I'm wondering whether there's such a thing as conventional gardening as a dominant practice, and how do certain gardening practices even contribute to land degradation at a smaller scale? It all goes back to to how, for me, is how you treat the soil. So, you know, if if gardeners and home home growers aren't taking care of their soil, they're contributing to the same issues that large scale agriculture is, and that's degradation. And when you get degradation, you get soil erosion, you get nu- nutrient leaching into your local waterways, uh, you get greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know. Part of the reason I wrote these books is to try to let people know that there's another way to do it and another way that's one easier and two much better for the environment. Mm. I don't know if there's ever been studies done on this, but do we know sort of what proportion of people who have gardens are doing it regeneratively and really caring for the soil compared to the more conventional ways? Because we have more more of these numbers in terms of agriculture, because a lot of these are businesses. Mm-hmm. But I wonder about, you know, people at an individual level in their households. Yeah, there's no such study that I've read that conclusively kind of wraps up that information in a neat and tidy way, which would be awesome for, yeah. <laughs> for some of my articles and new books. <laughs> But there is a great organization called Green America, and they've launched this climate victory guarding movement. And part of what they do is they ask for people to register their victory gardens, climate victory gardens, which we can talk a little bit about. But basically, the principle of those gardens is to grow food in a way that is good for the climate and actually helps to reverse climate change by this carbon sequestration that I mentioned before. So right now on their map, there's over... 2,000 or so gardens scattered across the country and more and more are being added every day. So I've kind of been looking at that as as a way to start to measure just how many gardens are out there thinking in this way and, and how quickly it's been growing, which has been kind of fascinating. So let's go into Victory Gardens, which is a central theme in your latest book. How significant of a role do you think our little patches of Victory Gardens can play in addressing something as large as climate change? And what made you center your message on this angle of Victory Gardens? So a Victory Garden was established, that idea was established during the First and Second World War um, when they started to sprout up all over the country. And their goal originally was to support the war effort. The thought was more food grown at home for civilians meant more food that they could send overseas to the troops. But it also meant that the trucks and the trains ordinarily used to transport that produce was freed up to move weapons and soldiers and, you know, just general things to help make the war effort a little bit easier. So growing food at home really helped also really helped families kind of stretch their meager, really uh, weekly rations. So it became very popular, so popular that by 1943, There's 20 million victory gardens across the country, and it's estimated that they grew about 40% of the nation's food. So that's, to me, that's just, that's a lot of little gardens everywhere, creating a large majority of, of the food we needed to eat at home. And my notion is, you know, many decades after the war, we could really use this new, a new victory garden movement because we can lobby our leaders and do the right thing by our planet. 
but we can't wait forever. So at some point, we kind of have to take actions for ourselves. And like you had mentioned, in this country alone, turf, backyards, open grassy spaces are three times the amount of land dedicated to growing corn. And with the average backyard of a little less than a fifth of an acre, that's a lot of space that can be put into good use as kind of these new age victory gardens, which I dub climate victory gardens, because of their kind of carbon sucking power that I described before. So given the numbers from Green America, is there an updated number in terms of what percentage of our foods are grown in people's backyards today? Definitely not nearly as close to 40%. Not not nearly. (laughs) Um, That would, you know, in in light of all of these things, you know, with COVID and people's concern over the food supply chain, I know that there has been a very large uptick, at least in the interest of growing your own food. This year alone, it was difficult for me even to buy the seeds I wanted. You know, I go to the local nursery, they're completely cleared out. So I know that this this spring in particular has probably been the largest increase in a very long time of, of kind of piquing people's interest of, of this notion of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and just kind of str- strengthening their communities through food. I've definitely heard from various people that they're getting into gardening, they really want to grow more of their own stuff, and also hearing from various nonprofit leaders as well. So this is definitely a positive trend, something that I hope will be long-lasting and not just sort of trending right now because Absolutely, of yeah. the coronavirus. But I think it does get people to not take our food supply for granted and realize that the only way we can truly build resilience if we take back some of that power and sovereignty over our own foods. Yeah, I mean, planting a garden for me is a very powerful act because it gives, like you said, each of us with any access to a patch of dirt, the ability to feed ourselves healthy food, but also the power to kind of do something about the threat of climate change. And now in the age of COVID, it it gives us a sense of control. Like this is a little thing that I can control and nourish in this time of like extreme kind of stress and uncertainty. So it's it's just all around powerful for, you know, mental health, nutritional health, community health. It's, it's, there's not much better in my mind in these times that, than gardening. We know from looking at environmental injustice that access to healthy and nutritious foods, access to clean air, clean water, safe environments depend on people's circumstances and their race and class. So how might Victory Gardens be a way to address this systemic environmental injustice from the bottom up and help to democratize access to healthy foods and spaces, especially for, you know, low income communities that may not have a lot of land? Sure. I mean, um, I'm currently writing a third book right now about kind of container gardening and this concept of container Victory Gardens. And I think that this speaks a lot to kind of, you know, lower class urban participants because, you know, not everybody has access to land. You're absolutely right. And it's predominantly, you know, the underserved, you know, the communities that need gardens the most oftentimes don't have access to it. So this idea of of container gardening is one outlet that can kind of give people just a little bit more access and control over the food that they put in their bodies. Because if, you know, you go into a cities and you hear the term food desert, you know, the only the only way they can get food is by going to say, you know, there's no grocery stores, there's gas stations or or fast food drive-ins. So 
the ability to kind of grow, even if it's just a few carrots or a few tomatoes, kind of that feeling of empowerment that you can get from that is is strong and motivating. And maybe it's motivating enough that that it makes you and your community want to do better. And, and, you know, maybe you have a vacant lot that you can set up a community garden in, or if you give one fresh tomato to your neighbor, and they love it, you kind of develop this community action that maybe as a group, you have more power to do more for your community. I recently just started growing some edible plants out of food scraps. So what I love about gardening is how accessible it is. So people who may not be able to purchase seeds, for example, if they're able to get their hands on some fresh produce, there's a possibility that they might be able to plant those food scraps and grow another set of food plants themselves. Absolutely. And then another, that's absolutely right. And another thing I like to tell people is that you don't have to buy seeds because at times seeds can be very expensive and that can be a limiting factor in getting someone to start gardening. But you can always, you know, a lot of, especially perennials, you can multiply from a mature plant by taking a cutting. So it's like a little piece of a branch or a piece of a root that you dig up and you go home and you plant it and you nurture it. You know, in one season, it will grow into a full plant just from that little piece you cut off. So we can really support this abundance. And as we look ahead, what is your wildest dreams of what could be if everybody really took your words to heart to prioritize growing perennial plants and growing victory gardens? I think in a, in a perfect world, I mean, the first thing that I believe can be achieved if everybody starts kind of growing their own food is at least this much bigger appreciation for food than we currently have. I feel like food is something that people take for granted and take the farmers who grow it for granted a little bit because they just don't know how hard it is or how difficult it is or even how subsidized it is. Um, a lot of the food we see on our shelves wouldn't be there unless unless there was a lot of help from the government, whether you think that should happen or not. So I think in this perfect world, everybody taking part a little bit in their own food production would kind of cultivate this larger community of appreciation with the nice side effect of kind of these environmental goals as well of, you know, reducing carbon emissions, increasing the health and viability of our soil, and and overall increasing the health of ourselves. And as we're wrapping up, what is your call to action for our listener to help bring this vision to life, given everything that we just discussed today? I mean, my my call to action is always go out there and start growing some good food. You know, I, I understand, you know, a lot of people ask me or, or tell me, you know, I would start gardening if it just wasn't so hard or wasn't so overwhelming. And, and a lot of what I do through my work is just to break it down into these very simple, easy, digestible steps that when when you look at it and you read it, you get this sense of, oh, I can do that. That's not bad. Mm. So Acadia's books are available at stonepeerpress.org slash store, and her personal website is acadiatucker.com. Acadia, thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise and learning lessons with us. We're closing off here, but what final words of wisdom can you leave us with as Green Dreamers? I would say never give up, and all it takes is to plant one seed before you get hooked for life. This concludes today's episode. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. 
If you're enjoying the show and find our independent platform valuable, please do come join our Patreon if you can, starting at just a tip of $2 at greendreamer.com/support. Today's song feature is "Politician Man" by Adrian Sutherland, and I also want to thank our audio producer Scott Donnell and our post-production content manager Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. Hey, Mr. Politician Man, won't you break me off a piece?